Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. So we're in the second week of four, exploring our church's mission. Let me back up. I want to welcome you. Uh, if you're, I just see a, new, a few new faces around here. So if you are just kind of casual about the things of Jesus or curious about the things of Jesus or committed, just really happy to have your company with us this morning. Welcome. We're in the second week exploring our church's mission, which is, next slide, this, to be a people who receive, and this is our condensed version, but to be a people who receive and reorient everything around life in Christ. What does that look like practically? I'm exploring four rhythms. Last week was worship. This week we're looking at formation. Why rhythms? Because the rhythms of our life, like a morning cup of coffee, for example, they shape our loves, which end up shaping everything. So last week was worship, this week formation, we're going to look at it through the lens of Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus, the small sinner. Well, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon often spent, I can't, I can't think of the story of Zacchaeus without thinking of this story. Um, Charles Spurgeon, he spent afternoons training his students on preaching, and one of the ways he liked to do it was he'd put a bunch of topics in a hat and had them draw them out like a piece of paper, and then impromptu, extemporaneously, without preparation, they had to preach a sermon. And I see a, a preacher back there, just say, oh, this, that, would, that would be tough. I'm with you. Um, so one student pulls out Zacchaeus, and this is what he says. He stands up and he begins a sermon. He said, first, Zacchaeus was of little stature, and so am I. Secondly, Zacchaeus was very much up a tree, and so am I. <laughs> Thirdly, Zacchaeus made haste and came down, and so will I. <laughs> and that was it. Um, Charles Spurgeon stood up and started clapping. He was just delighted. Uh, this, this sermon will be far less clever than that, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully more substantive. Let's look first at the sinner, and then at the sycamore tree, and then finally at the saint. So first, the sinner. Zacchaeus is most often associated with his small stature, as many of you have, have grown up with the, the flannel graphs and the tiny little Zacchaeus climbing up the tree. Um, immediately that endears me, uh, endears him to me. Uh, I am now a very average five foot nine. That is like the, the average height of an American male. But I moved to a small Dutch town in rural Iowa uh, when I was in fourth grade. And many of you know the Dutch are the tallest people in the world. Um, not, not to mention I was kind of a late bloomer. I was very undersized going into high school. And so I was kind of a, you know, I, I talk about being a triple threat for middle school cruelty. I was, I was small I was an outsider, and I was generally just kind of insecure. Um, now, for a man to be considered short in the ancient Mediterranean culture, we're not talking about, um, like, Tom Cruise short. We're talking about Frodo Baggins short. <laughs> Five feet tall or under. Um, this does in part explain my love for hobbits, I think. <laughs> I grew up often feeling like a small and sort of insignificant character in a, in a very wide and, and wild world. So I can draw on this history for myself to relate to Zacchaeus. Um, Zacchaeus was not only small in stature, he was also small spiritually and, and socially, you might say. He had no friends and he had no sense of salvation. Why no friends? Because he was not just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. His very presence was an unwelcome stench to the community around him. His life's work was extorting 
his fellow Jews to fund Roman oppression. So in Jewish eyes, there was no greater social or spiritual sin. So I want to pause here for a moment and think about how the story of Zacchaeus might intersect with your story. I've already named mine. I can relate to being kind of small and socially feeling isolated. Maybe you can too, or maybe not. Maybe you're Dutch. Um, <laughs> but can you relate to feeling small in a, in a kind of social or spiritual way? Have you ever just felt small and insignificant? Um, have you ever felt socially small? You just didn't, you didn't measure up to the standard of cool of the peers around you that you really longed connect, to connect with. Or maybe you've just felt kind of you knew you had besetting sins, like Zacchaeus did, his greed that drove him into this lifestyle, that just made you feel ashamed. And you kind of felt spiritually small. Like there was this wedge or a crowd or a barrier between you and the Lord who was passing by. Has any of this just made you feel small or isolated or ashamed or impure? Well, then I think the story of Zacchaeus does have something to speak to you. Zacchaeus' soul mirrored, I think, his small size. It's Formation, the formation of his soul, you might say, had been kind of weighed down or stunted by greed, by extortion. So to be a tax collector, you had to pay for it. You had to, you had to buy the position. So you already had to be wealthy. And then what you did was you had to give the Romans all the taxes they required, which were really high, but you also had to get more to pay yourself. So basically, the more you extorted, the richer you were. So greed had deformed and bent his soul. It bent it away from generosity. It bent it away from integrity. It bent it away from the community that he was created for, that we're all created for. So then what began Zacchaeus' reformation? Well, the first thing he does is he climbs a tree. He climbs a tree. So let's look at the second scene when the sinner, Zacchaeus, climbs a tree. And note particularly, we're in, we're in Luke 19, note particularly in verse 5. The very first words that Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus in the tree. Zacchaeus. It's the first thing he says. And here, friends, I think that the gospel is kind of buried in language because the original meaning of the name Zacchaeus is pure one or innocent one. That's what Zacchaeus means. So think again of those malformations of his heart, greed, those besetting sins, those accompanying social or spiritual uh, dislocations, maybe that you can relate to now. Now imagine yourself in Zacchaeus. Zacchae I'm just going to call him Zach because it's a lot of Zacchaeus. In Zach's shoes. You know, maybe deep down you think that you deserve to watch God pass by and to not notice you. And you think you need to hide in kind of the, the anonymity and safety of a tree behind a crowd. So let's use our sanctified imaginations for a moment. If it helps you to close your eyes, go ahead. Imagine yourself in this tree. And you're tucked away far from God because of your own sense of spiritual smallness. Your sins and your shame and your rejection, it's all keeping you there. Now imagine you watch Jesus slowly coming to a halt. And the crowd begins to murmur, why is, why is he stopping? What's he doing? And he looks up out of the crowd and he meets your eye. And then you hear him speak your name to you. And this is what you hear, innocent one, pure one. Come down from there. I must be with you. And imagine his word to you carries kind of like a gracious, warm wind through the branches. And it clears away your ability to hide and it clears away your need to hide. That is where true formation starts. In these branches, when God speaks a new identity to you, a word of grace to you, not, not dirty tax collector, but pure one, innocent one. 
I believe that your formation, my formation into Christ's likeness will only happen to the degree that we receive Jesus speaking to us a new identity. And that's why our, 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 we talk about receiving first and then reorienting everything around life in Christ. We must receive his grace, and that begins everything. So hear him speak to you, forgiven, pure one, beloved one. Because if you don't, then your relationship with God will be defined by you trying to perform and then inevitably growing tired and cynical and, and, and burnt out and disenchanted when it doesn't work. So we must come back to rhythms again and again and again of hearing him speak this gracious word to us. That's where formation begins. But notice that Zacchaeus wasn't entirely passive, was he? What did he do? What did, what did actually Zacchaeus do in this story? He came down. What did he do before that? He went up. So do you ever wonder what is yours to do in formation and what is the Lord's to do in our sanctification, the fancy word for growing into Christ-likeness? What is ours to do and what is his to do? Well, Zach climbed a tree. Why? Well, he wanted to see Jesus. Actually, more importantly, verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. There's a big difference there. He wasn't just trying to see Jesus, the local celebrity, and like have a story to tell his grandchildren. No, he wanted to see who Jesus was. He was deeply, genuinely curious about who this man was. He wanted to know more. His heart, though it was kind of deformed by greed, it was still hungry. I think he had a restlessness that drove him to want to see who Jesus was. Augustine has famously said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. I think Zacchaeus's greedy heart had made him restless. You know, he had wealth, he was unsatisfied. He was socially isolated. He was spiritually ashamed. Maybe there's something to Jesus. Maybe that's where my hope is. So I don't know what precisely maybe causes you to be restless. I know for me in seventh grade, it was my insecurity. It was my smallness. And that drove me to start praying, God, if you're real, if, if, if you really are who I'm hearing about in church, then make yourself known to me. I want to know you. So I kind of climbed the sycamore tree through prayer and asked God to reveal himself. Okay, so that's what Zacchaeus did. He climbed the tree. What, what does God do? He created Zacchaeus. He created his legs. He singled him out from the crowd. He invited himself over to his house. In verse 5, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. Diane Chen writes really well about the book of Luke, and, and here's what she says. She says, For every Zacchaeus who is found, there are many Pharisees and scribes who do not even acknowledge their lostness. No rupture of divine human relationship is so irreparable that the call to repentance and offer of forgiveness are withdrawn. Yet, it takes both divine initiative and humble human response for reconciliation to occur. So whose work is it? The formation of your soul. I think the lesson here is this. You do not accomplish the formation of your soul, but you must cooperate with it. We heard that in the reading of Isaiah. You do not accomplish the formation of your soul, but you must cooperate with it. Like a sailor can't create the wind, but can hoist the sail, you can climb the tree. That's what you can do. But you can't do a whole lot more. It's Jesus's from there. See, hoping to see Jesus, Zacchaeus was actually seen by Jesus. I'm suggesting that these four rhythms, uh, worship, formation, community, and mission, and then also Here's some more just very practical rhythms you might consider entering into. This is not a comprehensive list. These are just some things Advent offers that help you climb the tree, so to speak, or hoist the sail. Confirmation, uh, 
relational discipleship. That's a one-on-one friendship, uh, a 10-week curriculum written by our founding pastor, Rob Paris, who really invites us to see how the gospel weaves within our life stories, and you walk through that with someone. Gospel friendship group, it's a group of three to five people who you walk with in a more intentional way to help, help point out and notice where is Jesus forming you, how is he forming you. Prayer ministry, we do a lot of that. And then summer studies, just a few examples. But perhaps the question behind the question is this. Is anything driving you up the tree to see Jesus? So for Zacchaeus, for me, it was kind of a restlessness of heart. Maybe for you, you're already beyond that. Maybe it's just the joy of seeing Jesus. We're all in different places. But ask yourself, is there an equivalent of climbing the tree in your daily rhythms? And then some of you are now thinking, is this where the pastor tells us we should do a quiet time every day? Uh, I've never been highly disciplined about a quiet time myself. It was, and that, that, that was always kind of a source of shame for me because I've always been, a prof- well, I've been a professional Christian for a long time. Um, I had a breakthrough, though, when I realized that it wasn't primarily for me about discipline. It was more about desire. Here's what I mean. I had so long framed the daily quiet time as this kind of gold standard of what it meant to be a Christian. It was the performative duty that I had to do in order to not be a phony. And because I thought about it that way for so long, I never allowed myself to explore the deeper things of the heart. And I'm not tr- Discipline is good. Don't hear me say it's not. But behind, for me, I have to get a level below it. I had never allowed myself the freedom to explore what my heart desire was around it. I was so used to thinking of it as a performance. Do I long for the company of Jesus, really? Do I desire to climb the tree and be noticed by him at all? Do I want his presence? And I realized somewhere along the way that the answer, at least part of it for me, was no at times. I didn't. And then I began to explore why. Why was, and that wasn't always the case, but often it was, why? Part of it, I came to realize, was that I was a judgmental person. I I was a judgmental Christian, meaning I was very hard on myself in terms of uh, judging myself, and I kind of imported that on others. Um, Then, I took it a step further and I imported that on God. So because I was hard on myself and had a hard time forgiving myself, and I was disappointed in my lack of holiness, I thought, God's disappointed in my lack of holiness. So I'd come to him in in quiet time, and I'd subconsciously feel this sort of guilt and shame rising up, just like, oh, here we go again, here's my list of things I haven't done right. And so that was just kind of miserable for me. So I didn't really want to climb the tree. Now, I'm still working on this. Um, But more and more, I am climbing the tree in a variety of ways because I actually realize now that my desire is to be with Jesus. Why? What changes that desire in our hearts? I think it's understanding his character, and it's going back to what I just said, understanding his grace, that when he sees me and calls me down the tree, he is not coming to judge a sinner. He is coming to, to say, Zacchaeus, my holy one, my innocent one, come down, I must be with you. And so my heart's become softer, and I'm more excited to go into his presence because I come into his presence not kind of expecting judgment, but I come into his presence being welcomed as a friend. This leads us to the final scene of the story, the sinner, the tree, and now let's look at the saint Zacchaeus. You know, like all of our names, Zacchaeus' name was received. I've suggested that when Jesus spoke his name this time, though, he didn't hear it like he'd heard it a thousand times before. He received not just his name, but a new identity, pure one, holy one. And so while the crowds are outside grumbling, what do they say? Jesus has gone to be the guest of Zacchaeus, the sinner. 
Jesus is calling the sinner a saint. And more than that, his request for hospitality from Zacchaeus, it's it's actually pregnant with the promise of salvation. Where do we see that? In verse 5, Jesus says, I must stay at your house. When? Today. Which foreshadows again in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. In Luke's narrative, this word is very packed with kind of eschatological, salvific significance. Today is a sense of salvific urgency. I think Zacchaeus understood that. So he receives the salvation of Jesus, the very presence of the Messiah, with with joy, with hospitality. He takes Jesus into his home, and then the narrative becomes highly condensed. We don't get to know everything that happened that night, but we can suspect that Jesus stayed overnight in his home because we know that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. That was 18 miles uphill from Jericho. It's not a journey you're going to do in a day. So he almost certainly had a sleepover with Zach and the disciples. Now, what happened that night? What, what, what was the mood like? What, was it, what were the conversations happening? We don't know, but again, I want to try on the, the sanctified imagination. Imagine Zacchaeus's inner monologue that night. Again, if you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to, if it helps. As the evening cooled, perhaps the crackling of a small fire kept the conversation warm. And over dinner, Zacchaeus, is, uh, Zacchaeus indeed saw who Jesus was, just as he had desired. Here is the Messiah, he thought. Here is the Messiah at my own table, delighting in my company. There is such a gentleness and a strength of his spirit. There is such wisdom woven through with humility. Everyone else spits on the ground when I walk by, but, but here's the Messiah meeting my eye. I'm almost embarrassed to look at him, and yet I can't look away. What? Why does he look at me with such respect that I don't deserve, with such love? And in those moments, I think that the social and the spiritual shame was beginning to just melt away. Jesus' very words, his, his very presence was restoring dignity, promising forgiveness. I imagine that the greed, which had kind of crusted Zach's heart, <laughs> began to sort of fall off like scales as he was experiencing the generosity of God. And it was now as if the fire were, were crackling within him, within his bones, and it was sort of welling up from this place deep within him. And he says, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. That was his repentance and his restitution. I want to point out two quick things about his repentance and his restitution. Notice this. First, Zach's encounter with Jesus' grace came before his repentance, not after. And that order is very important. We do not repent in order to get Jesus. We get Jesus by faith, and his goodness and his grace leads us to repentance. It's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. In Judaism, traditionally thought that restitution needed to happen in order to receive forgiveness. But Jesus sees Zacchaeus, calls him pure, invites himself over to his house, says salvation has come, and as a response, Zacchaeus overflows with the generosity he has now experienced from Jesus. So the lesson for us is just that, that the way formation happens, how does true formation happen in us? By receiving Jesus with joy. In some ways, it's that simple. By routinely, again and again, almost daily, receiving Jesus with joy, and then basking in the warmth of his presence. Through his word, yeah, through church, through the sacraments, 
definitely, through prayer, through silence, maybe through some of these things, maybe through service for the poor, but it's entering into rhythms of life where we can receive, where we make space to sort of put up the sail, to climb the tree and hear his word to us. Second, the second thing to notice about the restitution is that it went far beyond what the law required. For extortion, we learn in Leviticus, the law was that you have to pay back what you extorted and then add 20% interest. What does Zacchaeus do? He says, fourfold, I restore it. So he more than do- he doubles it at least. And then he says, and beyond that, half of what I, get, I give. So he just blows the law out of the water. What do we learn there? I think we see that this was not a sinner who had been begrudgingly chastised into obedience. Oh, fine, you can have the money back, you know. But his heart had actually been changed by this encounter with God and his grace. And he longed to reflect the generosity he'd experienced with those he had extorted. Um, Years ago, three years ago, we preach, if we follow the lectionary, we preach on the same passage about every three years. Um, And when I preached on this three years ago, I came across this article from Andy Crouch that has really stuck with me and shaped some of the way I've been thinking about various things. I want to share it again with you, assuming you don't remember it. Anyone? Three years? Um, He encourages, uh, Andy Crouch encourages us that Christians are called to move beyond the ethical, in his words, beyond the ethical and into the redemptive. He points, uh, he illustrates this point with like a, a used car lot. He says, that car that you've been told has been on the lot for two weeks, so you're getting $1,000 off of it since it's kind of been hanging around for two weeks. It actually arrived the same morning, and it's $4,000 overpriced because there's actually an engine oil leak going on that you won't know about for three or four months. Now, that's certainly not all used car, I don't mean to like insult used car lots or used car salesmen, that's not all of them, but there's a reputation, right? What if the world were such that you went to a used car lot with full confidence that the salesman was going to be ethical towards you and honest towards you? Okay, that would be ethical. That'd be nice. It'd be nice to be able to expect that. But then Crouch takes it a step further and he says, we need to move beyond the ethical even into the redemptive. So what if, what does that look like? What if you went to a used car lot with full confidence, not only that you'd be dealt with honestly, but you'd be encountered by a salesman or a saleswoman who's going to look for creative ways to sacrifice for you, to respect you, to bless you. Imagine, imagine a world full of people who were literally, moment by moment, looking for proactive ways to sacrificially bless one another. That's redemptive. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kind of true formation of the soul that Jesus will do in us. If we keep receiving him with joy, we recognize our need for him like Zacchaeus did, and then we find him meeting our need of grace again and again and again. It will turn us into redemptive people. So Zacchaeus embodies, I think, what what Crouch means. He blows the law out of the water. God's grace sends him flying beyond what's ethical into the redemptive to embody the very kingdom of God. Why? Why Why did Zacchaeus do that? The, the scripture comes to mind because those who have been forgiven much love much. Here is the worst of sinners, now St. Zacchaeus. So perhaps the invitation is to start where Zacchaeus did, with repentance and restitution. What does that look like for you? You know, maybe, maybe you kind of, I don't know what it looks like, but you need, to, you need to pray about it and ask the Spirit. But maybe you find you're a little bit greedy with your time. Maybe time is your thing. I just don't want to give my energy and time away to others. So what if you started a rhythm where you spend one hour a week serving a neighbor? And you just thought, you know, one hour a week, I'm going to go out into my neighborhood. Maybe there's an old person 
who, an, an elder nearby, who has a hard time shoveling snow in the winter. So maybe you just devote an hour a week to shoveling snow. So yeah, maybe, maybe somebody could use some help with the yard or shoveling some snow. I don't know. How could you bless a neighbor for an hour a week? Not to become a saint, but because you are a saint. Or maybe like Zach, you do tend to be greedy with finances. Um, all of us, I think, wrestle with that to some degree. So maybe during the holiday season, maybe during Thanksgiving and Christmas, you decide, I'm going to tip 30%. I'm going to leave handwritten notes of encouragement. See, that's moving beyond the ethical. 20% might be, you know, somewhere in there is the ethical. You're going to, you're going to move past it. Maybe you decide we're going to offer an opportunity for you to sponsor a compassion child. I know some of you already do, but maybe this is a time to start sponsoring a, a child through compassion. Maybe you start setting aside $100 a month just for blessing neighbors and friends. So you just kind of have this pot of money that that's used to bless other people. I don't know. Pray about it. Not to become a saint, but because you are a saint. Or maybe the Spirit is stirring something even deeper, something more costly. I don't, I don't know. But the key, again, to even desiring to do any of that is to get your identity deeply settled in your heart. You are God's saint. But you've got to make space to actually hear him. Yeah, you have to make space in your rhythms in your life to actually hear him call you holy one and hear him say to you, come down, I want to be with you. And you have to make space to be in his presence, to let his presence and his words, as we're doing this morning, his words and his presence to us, change us from within. That's how formation happens. Thank you, Lord, that you came to seek and to save the lost like us. Help us to reflect that to the world, that you would give us a heart for the lost. Help us to be restless with anything less than you. Make us discontent with the lesser good things of the world. Uh, create in us a deep desire to see who you are. Would you teach us to, to live in rhythms of grace? We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.